What is this you porn that you're talking about? <laughs> I'm about to blow your mind. <laughs> Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. Say hello, Mickey. Hello. And with us today, we have a very special guest, our first uh, returning guest, I believe, Liz Page Gould, back by overwhelming popular demand. Hi, Liz. Howdy, friends. Yeah, the you know I think uh, our second ever guest, but uh, I think a really close friend of the podcast. Something tells me, Yoel, uh, this will not be the last time that Liz will be on the show. Yeah, man, you can't keep her off of a podcast. Well, we'll see, apparently, uh, on how this goes. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like overwhelming listener demand to never have exactly. Liz on again. <laughs> so uh, we um, we have a lot to celebrate today, do we not? Yeah, we do. Uh, well, I mean, for me personally, I, I've i always complained the last few episodes working too hard, and then Yoel was complaining about how I never work hard, so it's, you know, finally Mickey's working hard enough. But I finally, you know, I, I, I had a big event this past week, and I submitted uh, my second of two large grants, and that's over, and now I can really put my feet up, uh, and I'm quite excited uh, about the uh, foot-putting-up process. <laughs> So you're back to zero work, is what you're saying? Uh, maybe not zero. Very, very, you know, you know, less than the average working man. Yeah, you got to put in some effort, or else <laughs> it just looks embarrassing. <laughs> so, and and Liz, uh, you have news to share, don't you? Yes, I do. So, unfortunately, I will not be partying uh, with our illustrious hosts uh, because I am pregnant. So I'm going to be uh, fulfilling the second prong of my two-pronged approach towards immortality, which sounds cryptic and weird. But um, my point is that, uh, you know, the first prong towards immortality is contributing to the greater human dialogue through my work. And that's why I care about reproducibility and the idea that it will stretch beyond my lifetime, um, or at least things people build off of it will. Um, but if we have the burning of Library of Alexandria or an electromagnetic pulse or just a general cultural apocalypse, then the only thing that will matter is DNA. So my second pronged approach towards immortality is seeding the genetic pool. So that's good news. That's funny. I, you know, this podcast is my attempt at immortality. There you go. <laughs> uh, you well, uh, yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is how I want to be remembered. This is going to live on past our lives. So you might consider printing out paper versions of the transcripts or something like that, because I returned to the electromagnetic pulse. Yeah, well, if for the Voyager uh, spacecraft, and they, they they had like a gold record. Yes, yes. Right? That's going to be us. Gold Beautiful. record, Mickey. Oh. <laughs> That's right. So how are we going to celebrate, you know, this, uh, well, I mean, okay, my minor accomplishment of submitting a grant. And Liz, huge news, uh, Mazel Tov uh, on... Uh, you know, second one, uh, you know, one in the oven here. Um, I'm thrilled you, for you. Um, shall we drink, uh, Yoel, uh, to celebrate Liz's? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think you have to. yeah, no, it's it, it's a requirement. And because, um, in part, this is Mickey's big news, I am doing him a huge favor and uh, drinking a shot of Jaeger, which. <laughs> 
<laughs> which was kindly supplied by my graduate student, Nina Wang, who does not listen to this podcast, but thanks to her anyway for giving us the Jägermeister that she did not want. That's right. And she she's also uh, has been my TA. So uh, TA and graduate student donation here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we should be giving them gifts and not vice versa. Yeah, that's true. She's a little wrong. And you know, I... I, I well, first of all, I like Jägermeister. I'm not. I'm not embarrassed to admit it. I, it's, it's actually probably my shot of choice, and I, I not only do I like it, I like it extra because it's probably going to piss James Heather's off because uh, he calls me all different kinds of manner of name uh, when he finds out the kind of shots that I like. Yeah, he's probably choking on his beer snob beer right now, isn't he? <laughs> Aren't you, you little fucker? <laughs> <laughs> not that little. Um, all right, you all. Shall we? Uh, shall we drink this guy? L'chaim. L'chaim. I like the voyeurism. Oh my god, that's so nasty! Why do you like this shit? Oh, it's it's, it's complex and rich, and uh, gets you drunk. It's absolutely horrible, but it's sort of inevitable if you're how hanging out this? with Mickey. There will be shots of Jaeger. I don't understand how this is a product that is on the market. It's so disgusting. <laughs> uh, delicious. Um, well, of course, you know we are. We're not. Uh, uh, two psychologists for shots. We are two psychologists for beer. So we also have beer. Um, and as luck would have it, our we also have a donation of beer also donated by a student. So I, I feel we are corrupting the minds of uh, our students, UL. Um, nonetheless, they're incredibly generous and we're thankful for them. So um, we've got, you know, four beautiful bottles of beer from... Rouge River Brewing Company out of uh, Markham, Ontario. So just uh, north of uh, Toronto. Um, donated by Devin Bonk, who is a graduate student. Uh, he was a former undergrad in my lab and now a graduate student in kinesiology. And uh, was kind enough to donate donate to, you know, to, to donate this beer to us. And uh, we're, we're ever thankful. So I'm drinking. It's kind of funny. We're going to do a little summer to autumn theme. This is donated a few weeks ago now when the weather was nice. Um so I'm drinking now a pink guava sour. Again, this is the third time we're drinking a guava sour, um, which uh, not by choice. It just happens to happen to turn out this way, um, which is lovely. Uh, not too tart. Uh, it's kind of the right balance, I think, for me. And then, you, well, you're drinking a, a whopping 7.5% summer IPA. And uh, what's notable about this is that it's uh, got some unique hops. Uh, there's um, some hops from uh, South Africa called the African Queen. Um, that apparently give it a kind of a mangoey nectarine flavor. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Do you taste any of those fruits? No, no, but it's good. It tastes like summer. Excellent. That's a, that's a uh, New England style IPA. So uh, let's do a second uh, second round here, Yoel. All right. Cheers, sir. Yeah, cheers. Hey, Liz, how's your tea? It is delicious. Soothing. <laughs> Are you at all jealous of our beer drinking? Um, yes. But that being said, no, I, I really do like the voyeurism. Uh, from the last time I was pregnant, I would like ask my husband, Ian, if he was feeling the desire to imbibe. And then I would like stare him down while he cried and drank. So, uh, yeah, no, I enjoy it. So please do it more. All right. Well, well I, I think I should I think it's silly drunk by the end of this, just uh, to, to make you feel good. Excellent. Yeah, do Thank it for you. Liz. Oh, guys. <laughs> for Liz. <laughs> Not for the listeners, clearly. Um, no. So, Mickey, do you want to explain to our listeners what we are actually doing today? Yeah. So I think the, the, the theme today uh, of today's podcast is uh, vices. Um, and I think part of this was inspired by the fact that Canada... Uh, you know, federally, the entire country 
um, has legalized marijuana uh, as of October 17th. So it's been nearly two weeks now that it's been legal. And uh, this kind of, um, as a pot enthusiast myself, um, as a cannabis enthusiast myself, I, um, I was very, very excited, very happy. Um, and uh, I know that Liz is also excited uh, about this, this, this legalization because, you know, Liz loves freedom. Um, so I thought it would be nice to talk about, uh, you know, cannabis, weed, but maybe not the entire show on weed and talk about other vices potentially. Um, so another one that's, you know, close to the heart of our show and maybe many of the listeners is alcohol. So we'll be talking about alcohol as well. And then finally, because UL demanded it, we're also going to talk about pornography. Um, so uh, three, you know, quote unquote vices. Uh, I call them three pleasures in life. Uh, vices, fuck that shit. They're all good for us, right? Yeah, I, I got some pushback about like, why are th those things aren't vices. I mentioned this to a friend today when I, I told her what we were talking about tonight. She's like, no, I don't, I don't understand why any of that's a vice. So I actually looked up the definition of a vice and it's, re it's really circular. It's just something that's wicked or immoral which uh, is sort of question begging. So I guess, uh, do we, are these maybe not vices at all? Wait, what's the definition again? Uh, something that's wicked or immoral. Yeah, fuck that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> drinking alcohol is not immoral. I don't think uh, smoking weed is immoral. Pornography, I don't think is immoral either. Although no. I think, you know, some people can make, this is more of an argument I think maybe with pornography. Um, to the extent that uh, there have been some arguments made, and maybe we'll talk, get into this later, that maybe it affects, uh, for example, relationship satisfaction. Maybe it actually decreases, you know, um, it, it maybe contributes to, to marriages falling apart. I think this is all bullshit, by the way, but um, one could perhaps make a moral argument. I we maybe are getting ahead of ourselves, but I would say the moral argument there, the best part comes in the creation of the pornography. Like that's where maybe there's exploitation, but in terms of the use, I don't know. Yeah. Every, <laughs> every sperm is sacred list. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Those are all God's little angels. Uh, maybe a vice is just something that's, uh, pleasurable without seeming like useful or enriching right so like if i go admire artwork that's pleasurable but it also seems like it makes me a better person same with like watching a highbrow movie or reading a novel whereas if i'm getting high or looking at porn yeah i enjoy it but nobody's going to be like well you're ennobled by your you know, marijuana or porn use. Am I wrong? Some porn can definitely be a work of art. Yeah, so the literature I read defined it roughly as um, depictions of nudity or sex intended primarily for sexual arousal or gratification. So if I'm reading like D.H. Lawrence and I'm really into it for the literary shit, then like that doesn't count. But it, it's it's a little bit. I mean, the intent is is uh, you know debatable, right? Um, but that, that's a weird definition. Cause I remember I remember in high school, okay, when you know pornography wasn't like ever present like it is now. We would go into the biology, you know, you know encyclopedias, and like, oh, there, you know, there there is a picture of a vagina, and we would like sneak it where the librarian wasn't looking, and we were clearly doing it for pleasure. But I wouldn't call these medical images porno pornographic. That's really fucking hilarious. Yeah, I mean, imagine you like looking at the like diagram of like the uterus and <laughs> getting really excited. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but so but that definition implies that pornography is in the eyes of the user. Right. Um, that's a weird definition, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible to get too hung up on this, right? So like these days, it's like nobody has to go looking in anatomy books or whatever. You like look at you porn. And I'm sure that most people, when they're asked about how often do you look at pornography, they understand that to mean videos on the internet of people having sex, right? So I think it's actually- Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll show you later. <laughs> what is this you porn that you're talking about? I'm about to blow your mind. So, okay, so let's maybe talk a little bit about weed. Um, and as I'm, uh, you know, just mentioned that, um, I just got delivered to my house. Uh, weed delivered to me by the Ontario government. Um, it's a critical super silver haze. Uh, so it's a, uh, I believe it's a, a sativa. Like um, classic strain. Yeah. Classic strain, lots of THC, not as much, uh, CBD. Um, anyways, I am kind of thrilled by even having a package with the duties paid. So I pay taxes on this. It's got the official government of Canada stamp. Um, it's regulated. It's, uh, I know that it's safe, uh, We'll find out if it's good later. I haven't tried it yet. Um, but interesting. And also, I, I came up with, you know, in the package, it came up with some consumption facts, uh, consumption basics, including an admonition to avoid smoking cannabis, which is like, you're selling it to me. What else am I supposed to do with this? Um, I mean, I guess it's really about uh, risk reduction. Nonetheless, it's just like a whole new world for me to have the government giving me instructions about how to ingest uh, cannabis. And, uh, you know, you know, for example, it tells you like how soon the effects might take place, how long they might last, um, warnings about what might happen. Um, so really super fact based, which I, I appreciate, especially if you're a, a first time or, or, you know, early user. Um, but this is like a huge world of difference when, you know, for me growing up, you know, the way you got marijuana, uh, cannabis is you'd go on some street corner and hopefully you'd find some dude selling it. Um, and it was shady and like something you know, more than once I'd been sold oregano, um, or, you know, a shoe polish looking like hashish. Um, and it's just like, okay, now the government of Canada has realized, uh, this is an incredibly widely consumed product. Uh, it's not completely safe, but, um, relatively safe, especially relative to, for example, alcohol. And I think for all different kinds of reasons, decided to legalize it. Um, so, you know, you are a, uh, I think an expert on the topic, uh, an autodidact, uh, you self, you know, self-taught, um, but you know a lot about it. So I think it would be fun to, uh, kind of probe your mind a little bit. For sure. Well, and, and I do appreciate getting to be uh, asked in order to celebrate what I consider really to be not just legalization, but the end of prohibition, because people should never be put in jail for nonviolent crimes. That is your freedom that we're talking about. And um, I would argue that it is actually pretty darn safe as long as you're not operating a vehicle. Um, and there are other things to say, I guess. It, it always comes down to knowing your history. So one of the things that I feel that I really appreciate about the government providing that bilingual, I will add, um, instruction set is that you should always do your homework before you um, engage in trying any new substance. Um, what I mean by that is you should learn what um, effects you should expect. You should learn what, you know, the, what people consider pleasant, what they consider unpleasant about 
uh, whatever substance you're about to try. And the reason is because you'll then expect what you might uh, encounter and you won't freak out about it in amongst itself. But secondly, the other thing that's really important uh, to know about is family history. So I'll come back to that a little bit. But I think we should probably start with discussing uh, cannabis itself. So um, the form of cannabis that people use for uh, intoxication is Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol. It is its method of administration is inhalation or oral administration or, you know, eating it. Um, If you the speed of action is rather quick if you inhale. So you will feel something right away, but the peak high that you will experience from smoking is approximately 20 minutes after intake. Um, and then it begins to fall after that. But this is, of course, if you you know took one hit and then stopped right there. Um, if you are to eat it, then it is only fat soluble. And so usually people don't eat it as much, but really just because, you know, they don't understand the process. Um, insofar as you can't just like munch down on some buds and get high. But if you um, soak it in butter or in milk, uh, so women in Jamaica tend to drink this milk tea um, that is, you know, therefore the fat milk um, or the, the, yeah, the fat in the milk will absorb the, um, will absorb the THC and then it gives you the same effects. Right. Okay. So, so maybe going back to the kind of this idea of, you know, vices, maybe vices is kind of like, it's like a... Something that's got uh, it, it, it might drive pleasure, but there, uh, but it also has some negative effects, right? Maybe maybe that's a fair definition, right? So, what would be the negative effects of uh, why wouldn't you? In other words, why wouldn't you do uh, cannabis? Well, there are two things to say. So, first of all, the subjective experience uh, is something that, as I was saying, you should sort of educate yourself about ahead of time. So, there's a mild euphoria that comes with. Uh, cannabis consumption, a mild analgesia as well. So it has, you know, mild pain killing effects, not very strong. Um, Among people who have a little bit of a tolerance, who aren't um, infrequent smokers, then they also experience relaxation. Everybody has increased appetite pretty much and amplification of sensory experiences, time dilation or just distortion. But the negative effects, particularly for people who do not typically use it, are that you have tachycardia or accelerated heart rate um, tends to increase by about 20 to 50 percent of whatever is your baseline and an anxiety uh, experience that comes with that. So people talk about a paranoia. Again, this is really in people who don't uh, imbibe regularly. But amateurs. Yes. <laughs> but what that means is when people, you know, say, hey, it makes me super anxious. I'm like, probably. Yep. Um, and so, you know, if you're socially anxious to begin with and, uh, you know, weed isn't your bag, then it's probably not a good idea if you're in you know, some social company and they're passing around a bowl or what have you you're just going to freak out, you know, Um, you're not going to enjoy yourself. So the second thing to say, though, is going back to um, doing your homework ahead of time and why it's really important to know your history. And what I mean by that is your family history. So there are um, 
arguable relationships with various, uh, you know, psychosis. But in particular, uh, there are two forms of, um, you know, uh, mental uh, illness. Um, I'm probably not using the proper term for that, but uh, that are generally related with um cannabis use. So in particular, people have focused in on schizophrenia. And while it does not seem, although depending on what review you're looking at, um, it doesn't necessarily seem to uh, increase the incidence of schizophrenia. However, if you have a family history of schizophrenia, um, then and it's latent in there, then first of all, don't do any psychedelics, first of all, um, because that definitely, uh, people argue, that triggers um psychosis that maybe would not appear otherwise. Um, and they've done some, you know, really large scale prospective studies um, in terms of like, as in there's uh, this very famous one that involved more than 50,000 people um, that it was prospective. So they were people who had started using cannabis by the age of 18. It was predictive of a schizophrenia diagnosis within the next 15 years. Um, however, be the reason I'm saying it doesn't increase the incidence of it, or I mean, would be my read, but of course, actually from that study, they concluded that it did, um, is that cannabis use has drastically increased over, um, you know, the last number of decades, while schizophrenia rates have also decreased. Uh, so there's definitely different, um, you know, different forms of evidence that we have to take all together there. But that being said, among people who are schizophrenics, um, it does seem to be that they use cannabis more than people who don't. And if they do, that it increases psychotic symptoms. So if that's something that's floating around in your family, you know, I'd say just pass, right? So Liz, just to be clear, yeah. it could be that people who are at risk for schizophrenia also have other, uh, let's say, emotional problems yeah. that they're using cannabis in order to self-medicate those problems. And so that it couldn't, it, it could be that it's not causal at all. Yes. And that's actually a big part of this prospective study with 50,000 people um, that, you know, that people were discussing there um, because, yeah, it it, because there have been many sort of it's a well, well replicated finding that there's just increased use of cannabis um, among schizophrenics. So it must be soothing something that that they seek it out. So I'm not sure, Liz, if you've seen this paper. Uh, there's a paper out uh, published this year, 2018, in Nature Neuroscience, uh, with the title, it's a GWAS, gene-wide association study, um, of lifetime cannabis use reveals new risk loci, genetic overlap with psychiatric traits, and a causal, key, causal influence of schizophrenia. Um, and here in the abstract... Uh, one line here, a Mendelian randomization analysis showed evidence for a causal, again, stressing causal, positive influence of schizophrenia risk on cannabis use. Wait, so this is consistent with the reverse causality, right? So if you're predisposed to schizophrenia, you're also likely to like weed. Okay, that's interesting. Um, okay, so that's, I mean, I think that's like one attention, you know, a, a headline grabbing thing was like, oh, there might be an association between uh, cannabis use and schizophrenia. And maybe this, well, you, I think you, you astutely pointed out, it might be the opposite direction from what is maybe being applied by scaremongers. Um, nonetheless, there's an association there. And, and I think one 
I mean, amazing benefit of legalization is like, fuck, we can start studying this stuff openly and and not worry too much about, you know, we have to go to these places where, you know, we can't do proper studies. Um, so I, 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 I'm so looking forward to the day where we can just conduct open research with cannabis. But um, you reminded me a few days ago that um, I once asked you, like, what, what research would you do with cannabis? And I think that's kind of a fun question maybe for all of us to think about. So, you know, you know, the IV is cannabis. What's your DV? What are you interested in? What, what question are you interested in, in, in answering and addressing? So uh, have you thought about that at all or... Yes. <laughs> well, I study social interaction, right? And uh, between strangers and friends and what propels those in that initial interaction to then lead to a second interaction, which is the fundamental you know, framework for then building a friendship. So, I mean, one thing that I would be interested in too, of course, would be to administer um, cannabis or not uh, during an initial interaction between strangers. And what I would expect is that there be an interaction with other anxiety invoking factors, right? Um, and then you compare that, right, to among people who are friends. Um, so actually, you'd have to cross this in a few ways, because there would also be people who had already been heavy users where they wouldn't have this anxiety um, addition, additional component. And in fact, they get relaxed, right? Whereas people who had never really tried it before, um, they would have this amplification um, of that anxiety experience. The crossover interaction. You predict novel users who were like, they come to a study about weed yep. um, and they're actually going to be, might be less likely to be friends because they're anxious about it yep. versus more experienced users might have the opposite kind of bonding experience. Indeed. Um, and then also, of course, with issues of it also, you know, in short term effects, it also affects working memory um, and other things like that. There are other sort of, you know, impairment of motor skills, slowed reaction time, and fluency is fundamental in social interactions. So when people are awkward, and by this I even mean like delays of a few, of a second in terms of responding to something, uh, this gets picked up by their partner as being anxiety and being, you know, that they're it, well, you know, that they are somehow sort of monitoring themselves and not being as open and forthright and honest about who they are. And so, you know, in those ways, I could see uh, these cognitive effects affecting first time interactions among strangers. But then I'd be really interested among friends to see the difference. So what about you, Yoel? Do you have any, uh, you, know, you know, again, weed is the IV. You can, you can cross with other things. And, and, and so what would be your DV? Yeah, I'd be curious to see whether it makes you more creative. So uh, there's like a number of standard measures of creativity. So get people high or not, give them that. Um, again, I think it's, it, it, are you a regular user versus not is going to be important here, right? So I can imagine that for people who use regularly, it would actually make you more creative or you're less like uptight or blocked or whatever. For the non-regular users, I imagine that it would be like, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep it together, right? So yeah, an interference uh, mm. prediction. That's interesting. Because I mean, I think there's a stereotype about, you know, that, that, that weed uh, uh, kind of bolsters creativity. And in fact, I know some incredibly prominent uh, 
psychologists who do their creative work, not necessarily the writing or the designing of studies, but they're thinking about studies, you know, hypothesizing almost exclusively on me. Uh, I'm not talking about myself here. Um, but yeah, is it just like, is it interesting only when you're high is the question or is it legitimately actually creative? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, so for myself, I mean, I feel there's so, so much low-hanging fruit um, out there. And I guess I'm interested in some of that stuff. I'm just interested in like the basic questions. So for me personally, um, uh, well, there's a stereotype and I, I think I feel it myself. It's like you're, um, what, you know, the, the weed hangover. Okay. So yeah, it's interesting to, to know what, what it's like to be when you're high, but what about the next day? So we know that, you know, for me, I suffer terribly from alcohol hangovers. And this is actually why I don't drink as much as I, I like drinking a lot. But because I got such bad hangovers, I don't drink very much because it's so aversive. Um, but, I, but there is, you know, there's a weed hangover, but it's not nearly as strong for me. Um, and, uh, but I'm fuzzy the next day. I'm not nearly as sharp. I'm not, I'm not, there are some days where I'm downright stupid. Um, so I'm just curious about that weed hangover. Um, so what, what, what's your cognitive performance like? Uh, what's your physical performance like? Um, what about motivation? So that's, I think that's one that we hear a lot. So, and that's maybe why we advise, you know, we don't want adolescents doing it or teenagers doing it because it saps their motivation. So how does that manifest exactly? Um, is it that uh, when you're, either when you're high or, or hungover from being high the previous day, is it that you find things um, that are too effortful? Um, like, oh God, I can't, I can't walk, you know, 500 meters. It's way too hard. I'm going to Uber, I'm going to Uber in a meal as opposed to walking down the street. Or is it that like the rewards themselves aren't as appealing? I um, mean, like, ah, I don't feel like doing that. It's just not that much fun. So I, I'd be really interested in unpacking the, the, how, you know, being high, but also especially how being hungover from being high affects your motivation. That's a fascinating topic. Definitely. And I will say when it comes to, you know, um, you can look at cessation studies in order to have a sense for um, how long it takes for cannabis to get out of your system. So uh, for one, you know, cannabis is stored in our fats. As I was saying, it's uh, fat soluble uh, and it has... Um, uh, uh, well, these cessation studies tend to look at, say, one day post uh, the cessation of use, seven days, and then 28 days. And when people do cessation studies well, as in they um, use urine tests to ensure that people are actually uh, cessating. <laughs> um, we can't trust uh, Yeah, exactly. Um, then it seems like almost all of these cognitive effects go away, including one of the uh, one of the few really robust long term effects that people find, which are decrements in verbal IQ and word span, you know, over time uh, for, among heavy users. But after a 28 day washout period, there are again no differences. Uh, but one day after, seven days after, there are still differences among heavy users. Okay, hold on. I just want to unpack this because this is now giving me hope that like I can recover some of my verbal IQ. Um, in other words, all I need is a month. I, I gotta, gotta be clean for a month. It That's seems it? so, yes. Oh my God, get, get ready world.
I will say that onset of first use is a, a big variable um, in uh, in the literature. So, uh, you know, everything seems worse the earlier you use it, um, even among these populations where we know it's probably, you know, uh, contraindicated like schizophrenics. It's, you know, it's be they have better outcomes if they're not using it before 18 than if they use it after 18. But the biggest issue is that all of these, almost everything has been cross-sectional. Cross-sectional studies are, 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 are very interesting and important, but um, they're, they're problematic because they're correlational. And as a result, there's like people who smoke weed are different than people who don't smoke weed. And they have a whole host of the different things that they bring with them. And in the, it's therefore very hard to make these causal inferences. I think a lot of people, um, they start using it like when they're like 14, 15, 16. So, um, so what are the issues there? Well, it's just everything's worse the earlier it is. I mean, it's just this variable that ends up being highly predictive, right? So Bill Blair, who's now a federal MP, but or member of parliament, but uh, he was formerly the chief of police in the city of Toronto, uh, pretty much right after he retired as the police chief, one of the first things he did was come out and make a public statement in favor of legalization. And his argument was that in uh, in Ontario, at least, that uh, cannabis was vastly easier for teenagers to get a hold of than either alcohol or tobacco. And as a result, cannabis use was much higher than alcohol or tobacco use among, uh, you know, among minors. And the reason for this is because if you regulate it, it's harder to get. If you regulate it, there's not a black market. And if there, I mean, there's a little black market, you know, there might be, you know, your older cousin or your older, you know, sibling or whatever might go out and buy something for you. Um, but, you know, in general, there's not like, you know, tobacco dealers really in the same way that there are, you know, cannabis dealers and people who uh, traffic in the black market, you know, they don't care as much about whether or not they're selling to minors because they're already, you know, a little bit on the sketch side, right? So therefore, if we regulate it, it makes it very it, much harder to get. And so that was one of his, that was his main argument. And it's been a big argument of the, uh, you know, government while they've been instituting these plans. Um, I think it also makes it uh, I mean, I think you're, you're speaking about the, the distribution side, which I think is I think you make a really good point. Um but I think the other part is, um, and I'm speaking now as a parent uh, of young children, um, I've spoken like countless times with my kids about alcohol because they see us drinking it um, and they're curious about it. And we talk to them about it and we say, well, this is something that's for adults and you have to wait until you're 19 years old to drink this. And, um, you know, uh, you might not want to do it right now. Uh, whereas, you know, until recently, I would just like hide any mention of cannabis. I would kind of, you know, not mention it at all until about, I would say about a month ago when my son, as we're walking to school, asked me about, okay, what's in that shop? And I'm like, normally I would have said like, oh, no, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. There's nothing there. Um, but no, I'm like, no, no, this is a, a shop that sells, you know, cannabis and it's kind of like alcohol. It's meant for adults only. And and it kind of changed the way I, the fact that I even talked to my kids about it is something radically different. Um, 
Like I have to now because it's available. Um, and I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think they're going to be less likely to use it because I'm talking to about it and it's, it's no longer a taboo. It's no longer something that they're excited to do because it's illicit. I know, my personal opinion, though, is that it's less extreme than alcohol, honestly. I, you know, I, I've always wondered why the one drug was generally legal and the other wasn't. Although I think a part of it is, I mean, as you know, I am an American Canadian. I have dual citizenship and, you know, Americans have a long history of really loving our alcohol. You know, my husband w grew up on the, uh, at the base of Bower Hill, which is the, you know, the whiskey rebellion that in many ways, uh, you know, I would say, uh, accelerated the formation of what we really think of now as the constitution and, you know, and the, uh, in, in the modern United States. Um, and it was that they were taxing people with whiskey and, um, that really ticked off, uh, those, you know, early Americans. So anyway, I think essentially it was difficult to prohibit alcohol. Um, whereas with cannabis, the use was just much less strong. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was not illegal until, I mean, the first, um, the first hints of illegality really came in 1935 in the United States. And then there's, you know, more coming in 1937, which is also when the term marijuana started to be widely used in the um, American English because uh, it came from Mexican Spanish. Um, but it was popularized um, by a campaign by um, the first and longest serving commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry uh, Anslinger. And he was a strong supporter of not only prohibition uh, for cannabis use and other drugs, um, other non-alcoholic drugs, but also uh, for very strict uh, punishment for those who uh, broke those laws. And um, there's the, a racist element there. Well, yes, the American Heritage Dictionary. I mean, of course, people argue one way or the other in part because they lose their mind over anything being called racist. But the American Heritage Dictionary <laughs> suggests that uh, the term marijuana was was used uh, strongly by Anslinger um, and others really because it sounded more foreign and helps then to make it seem more exotic and scary and, you know, something that, um, you know, good common white Americans wouldn't do. Um, so um, it was first, uh, uh, um, it was, the term actually appeared and was codified into, um, you know, American law with the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. But that, and that's also why I think in Canada where we're not using the term marijuana. No, it's the we're cannabis, the cannabis act, act. right? Yes. Uh, because it's, I guess, because of the history of this word being used to stigmatize it um, and to make it see, yeah, to make it seem foreign. I guess. Yeah. Although I, I must admit, I like that marijuana. I like yeah. this Mary well, Jane. Sure. Well, that's it. I mean, Tom Petty, <laughs> yeah, <right>. you know, <laughs> made Mary Jane so so fundamental. You know, I mean. But there are many nicknames, right? There's Mary Jane, Pot, Reefer, Bud, Nugs. Danja.
And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're reachable on Twitter at at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. Uh, we both check that pretty regularly, even though I'm off uh, Twitter for the most part. Other than that, I do still check the podcast account. Uh, so that's a great way to get in touch with us. If you prefer email, you can email fourbeerspod at gmail.com. As always, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can find our by now extensive catalog of back episodes. But okay, so I'm going to kind of take over a little bit here and talk about... Uh, my vice, or uh, if we will, the thing that you know brings uh, brings us pleasure here in the podcast, very close to to our heart, which is alcohol. I did a little research uh, preparing for today, and uh, these might be kind of more, uh, you know, seeing the forest kinds of points. Um, so the first point I want to make is, and this is, I find this when I read when I first read this, I found this fascinating and and surprising to me. Um, and that is that um there's an argument being made that alcohol helped create and propel civilization. Uh, it was instrumental in the survival of our species. And I'm like, what? I mean, come on, dude. This is like a study produced by like uh, Beer company Budweiser, or maybe some, you know, uh, al- you know, vodka company. Who knows what? But um, apparently, so alcohol has been around for 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 thousands of years. Um, the first apparently, uh, the first record we have of of alcohol is, I believe, sixteen thousand BC, where there are records of palm wine uh, being drunk. Um, and then uh, at 13,000 BC, there's also some evidence of uh, wine made out of wild potatoes. So this is, again, you know, um, palm, the heart of palm, you know, it's naturally fermenting, creating alcohol. Uh, or again, wild potatoes, they've been kind of left there a little bit too long, again, fermenting. And, uh, you know, uh, Africans and Chileans, uh, native Chileans, um, would be, you know, eating the, the potatoes or the palm uh, to get drunk. Um and then eventually learning how to distill it and, and, and make something uh, more palatable out of it. Um, so it's been around with us for a long, long time. But, but now how could it propel civilization? That's kind of, I think, a more provocative statement. Um, and the idea here, well, for, first of all, you know, let me just state, and I think this goes without saying, that alcohol is deadly. I mean, it, it, yes, we, it, it's widely consumed all over the world. And clearly, we drink a lot of it here in the, in the podcast. But it it's, you know, kills lots of people. So... Uh, there's an estimate that it kills about 3.3 million people each year. Um, it accounts for nearly 6% of all deaths uh, worldwide. Um, but if you zero in on the 20 to 39-year range, which would be the range of our, our many of our undergraduates, our graduate students, postdocs, um, junior faculty. Liz, I think you fall in that range. Do you? I'm yes, 38. You I'm you're right 30. at the edge. <laughs> yeah, you're right there. Um, it kills uh, it, it's the 25% uh, you know, of all deaths is due to alcohol in that age range. So this is you know, a dangerous substance. And you compare that to, to cannabis, which is it kills nobody. Yeah. Um, so a dangerous substance, but nonetheless been with us uh, for a long, long time. Um, and how, again, how, how can it propel civilization? And the idea here is that, um, of course, as a species, uh, not just us, but all 
uh, I think every species practically, needs water to survive. We need it. Without it, we will die. We need water much more than we need uh, food. Um, So we're much more likely to die of of dehydration than to die of hunger. Um, But the issue is that uh, not all water is safe to drink. Um, There are parasites. There are various kinds of microbes in the water that can make us sick. Um, Some of the sickness is is mild, um, but sometimes it can lead to death. Um, uh, so, but now alcohol is really interesting because it acts as a disinfectant. It actually kills, uh, most microbes it comes into contact with. It's not sterile. I think at one point I thought it was sterile. It's not, it's not as if zero microbes live there. I, I think there are some spores that can still live, uh, in or around alcohol. Um, but uh, it reduces dramatically uh, the number of microbes that are around. So therefore, if you want to ingest a liquid that will hydrate you um, and you don't have uh, safe drinking water, your best bet would be to drink alcohol. So to drink kind of like a, uh, a light sort of beer, maybe a wine, um, that would be a good thing. Um, and in fact, up until the 17th century, apparently, in Europe, um, uh, beer was the drink of choice for mornings. Because um, again, you need to be hydrated. Uh, and yes, you'd be mildly drunk. So when you're, you know, <laughs> doing whatever construction you have to do, whatever work you might have to do, you might die because of the, because of the fact that you're consuming alcohol as opposed to pure water. But nonetheless, you are at least being hydrated. So it allowed for the um, for our uh, species to be hydrated and, and thus survive. And there's some arguments that, in fact, um, The advent of agriculture was brought about because early humans wanted to have a safe and regular source of alcohol. Okay, so it's not the opposite. It's not that alcohol, sorry, that uh, agriculture then led to there being a greater preponderance of uh, of alcohol. It was that, you know, people wanted the alcohol and therefore found ways to have ready supplies of it i.e. agriculture. That's really interesting. And of course, we know that agriculture propelled our species greatly. That was a great leap forward for our, for our species. But that's kind of cool, right? I mean, like alcohol was a major, major leap forward for us. At least that's one argument. Um, in this, ar- this article where I got this, also said that caffeine, the coffee uh, specifically, because caffeine uh, was around in tea for thousands and thousands of years. But coffee, at least in uh, Western culture, was kind of introduced quite a bit later, uh, more around the time of the Enlightenment. And in fact, some people argue that coffee, that caffeine, the caffeine found in, in, in coffee was what spurred the Enlightenment. It led to people dropping alcohol, which sure, hydrated you, but also led you to be maybe a bit slow, a bit sluggish, uh, inebriated to switching to caffeine, which does the opposite, which kind of leads you to be energized, uh, maybe to even uh, think more clearly a little bit. Um, so these two kind of beverages are thought to kind of uh, help the um, propel our civilization forward. I have to find that to be a, a, an interesting argument. I'm not sure how credible it is, um, but uh, it seems to be interesting. Do you guys buy that, uh, the, the, this notion of alcohol being incredibly important for our, for our species? Well, I, I have also heard that uh, people were drinking alcohol in part because of the sterilization issue and water, um, you know, in, in the concern about water contaminant. Honestly, I haven't done the scholarship, so I don't know. I, I feel like agriculture is one of those things that had to 
evolve, you know, in terms of cultural meme, right? Um, no matter what, it seems to me to be fundamental, right? I mean, really what was uh, with the early hominids, what seemed to be so important was bringing food back to a common place. So therefore then, you know, having a steady set of supply of food also to itself seems to be necessary. But that being said, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm talking out of my ass again. Yeah. Um, okay, the second little kind of factoid um, that I want to talk about um, was brought to my attention um, by Edward Slingerland, Ted Slingerland, who is a, I think he has various hats, um, cultural anthropologist, uh, a sinologist, um, an historian. Um, he's a professor, a Canada research chair, I believe, at University of British Columbia, and just like a super cool guy and, and, and fun to hang around with. Actually, really fun to have drinks with. Um, I wrote this 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 uh, highly recommended book. Uh, it's called Trying Not to Try, and it's essentially a book about um, Confucianism and Taoism. So he's again a sinologist and a, a historian of of, of you know uh, the warring periods in China. Um, and this whole book is about what he calls, uh, or the term, I guess, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, is Wu Wei. Wu Wei is this, um, uh, is the experience of spontaneity. Okay. It's the experience of being natural. It's um, being yourself. But it's not being yourself truly, because in a way you cultivate that being yourself. So it's like practicing something over and over and over again till it's spontaneous, which again sounds like a contradiction, but I think in um, Chinese culture it, it kind of fits. And and that's because in Chinese culture there is a there's a premium placed on people again who are their true selves people who um, act spontaneously who are not trying too hard who it's clear they're not effortfully trying to put on airs they're not trying to be something else okay so they really really value spontaneity um so a lot and, and apparently a lot of Confucianism and Taoism is built on this notion of spontaneity um, so now you might ask yourself, well, what does this have to do with alcohol? Um, well, uh, uh, the, the connection is that alcohol uh, makes people more themselves. It, you know, it to some extent kind of turns off or down regulates the executive parts of our brain. Um, and we're less controlled. We're less regulated. And our true Im impulses uh, tend to emerge. Okay, and that's why, you know, so, you know, that's, you know, kind of this notion of being disinhibited when you're drunk. And that's why being drunk is fun, um, because, you know, you kind of like sing together, you laugh together, but it's also why you get into fights, uh, because those, uh, our true nature is both good and bad. It's not necessarily all good. Um, but now, apparently, um, in ancient China, um, but also today, um, you cannot, uh, in today, by, by today I mean in a business context today in China, you cannot have any major treaty, any major agreement between businesses or back then between warring tribes without a massive, and I'm talking about massive, you know, drunk fest. So, you know, today, uh, two businesses are, are making a deal. Before that deal is signed, they're getting massively drunk together. Um, and, and again, this happened, you know, thousands of years ago. And the reason for this is because Wu Wei would emerge when you're drunk. 
your true nature, your spontaneous nature will emerge when you're drunk. Um, and apparently, so so that's one reason um, you can you can trust the other person, and, and they're not trying to hide something. They're not, they're not trying to effortfully suppress something from you, or at least they might be doing that. But the alcohol will 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 allow their will will you know force their tr true natures from coming out. And the second is that actually being drunk together is a positive experience. So it's a bonding experience. So you kind of have a, have a sense of connection, a sense of identity. And again, the, the heart of this idea is, you know, hey, everyone, see, I got no cognitive, you know, cognitive trolls offline. I'm not controlling myself. and I'm still a good guy. Um, so you can trust me. So it's a sign that you can trust me. I think it makes sense that it, uh, in the idea that if you are willing to get drunk in front of someone else, then you are willing to allow various things to be revealed that otherwise you might try to inhibit. However, I think there is something key in what you said, which is that if we get drunk together and you see I'm still a good guy, but I I, I assume that we all must have had experiences of where you're hanging out with someone and then they're kind of reliably what I would call a mean drunk or an aggressive drunk. And um, and I personally am then like, okay, in my head, that person's a, you know, they get a little aggressive when they're drunk. And then I'm not as interested necessarily in uh, hanging out with them as much, to be honest. Although most people get pretty lovey, I find. Okay, so then the question here is... Um, because I think I tend to bracket out. I subtype. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, they're just an asshole when they're drunk. Um, but I, I, I wonder if I let that carry over to when they're not drunk. Am I, am, am, I, am I less likely to like them because, you know, they're a jerk when they get drunk? I mean, is that your, is that your experience? Yes. <laughs> so, so you, so in other words, you, you kind of abide by this Chinese tradition of the true self comes out when you're drunk. Um, with you know, of course, you you excuse some things, but um, oh, yeah. but you know, if they're systematically mean, you're like, you know, maybe they're actually truly mean. Yeah, <laughs> has that been your your, your experience as well? You well, I mean, do you your judgments of people when they're drunk? Does that does that bleed over into non-drunk land? No. I think less than you guys. I, I think there's there's kind of two uh, kinds of theories that people have. And one is what you just said, that when you're drunk, it reveals who you really are. And the other is that when people get drunk, they just act weird or crazy. So I had one friend, Jessica, and she was like the sweetest person in the world. But when she would get drunk, she would get nuts. She would like literally run off. We we lived in Oakland. So we would be like in downtown Oakland, not a safe area. And she would just like run away. Because she had gotten drunk and she had gotten some crazy idea in her head and she would just like start booking it down the block. And I think the inference that I drew there was like, she's a crazy drunk and should drink less. <laughs> but, <laughs> but otherwise a good person. But otherwise a wonderful person. Yeah. Yeah. So I but I do think that like this is something that you could, you know, reliably measure. Like what theory do people have about is it you get drunk in your inner self, your true self comes out, or you get drunk and you act in ways that are not characteristic of who you really are? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so m my big thing is uh, I get maudlin when I'm drunk. I'm just like nostalgic and lovey and just, I, I really do, I, group hugs are never more attractive than like when I'm drunk. Uh, and poutine. And Putinus, right? <laughs> and that might just be a main effect, really. All right. Let me just say that yeah, the reason that I was 
I, I did choose this vice. Um, and it's not so much that I find the, um, the topic intrinsically interesting is that there was one particular question that I wanted to know the answer to. And this is something that I've seen floating around a lot recently, which is along the lines of uh, young people today are having worse sex because of porn. And it's because um, the contention goes young men in particular watch porn. They view it as an instruction manual and they try and like implement the things that they've seen. And it turns out that those things are not a good fit for um, what would actually make them happy. And I was curious whether there was any research backing up this contention. And just to um, to cut to the chase, there's not. So there, there's absolutely nothing that I could find that tested this question specifically. So I think for the um, porn and sexuality researchers out there, that's a super interesting question that I think a lot of people would like to know the answer to. But as far as I could tell, um, and I asked around, um, there is really nothing looking at that specific question. So unfortunately, um, I came out of this somewhat unsatisfied in terms of my... Um, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. Um, my my initial question not being answered. But I, I did learn some things about pornography, which I did not know before. So first of all, I'm just going to give you some basic statistics about um, the use of pornography, which, as we talked about earlier in the episode... Um, the research tends to define pornography as material that depicts nudity or sexual activity that's intended to um, arouse or um, gratify some sort of sexual needs. Um, so if you ask people um, in the last week, have you uh, looked at porn? And this is across all age groups, 40 per six. 46 sorry, percent of men will say, yes, I have. 16% of women will agree to that. So that's nearly half of men across all ages uh, who say that they've uh, looked at porn in the last week. If you just look at young adults um, specifically, 90% um, of male young adults say they've looked at porn uh, within the last year. Um, one half said that they've looked at porn within the last week. A fifth say that they use porn nearly every day or every day. So that's a reasonable amount of people. There are lots of people lying on that. Uh, you mean Sorry. they're 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 in the downwards direction, I assume. <laughs> what was the what was the number for the last week? Uh twenty percent. Twenty percent. So oh, sorry, uh, that's daily, half weekly. Half weekly, I would say. I don't know. Another half are lying. You think that's <laughs> well, well? Okay, I'll come clean. I have not looked at porn in the last week. I've not looked at porn in the last week. Mickey? Uh, uh, I have. <laughs> there you go. For, to prepare for this. So we're <laughs> right scientifically. So we're, like, we're at the expectation of 50% of men. Look, there I, we go. Uh, there well, go. I would be curious about the goals there, right? So what I hear when I hear, you know, oh, 20% or say they look at it daily, I'm like, well, so how often does someone masturbate, right? And I feel that a lot of times people are using porn to, you know, just, get aroused, have a little good time with oneself. Um, and so I'm assuming that a lot of people masturbate a lot. I don't know. Is there, is there a one-to-one -one porn viewing and masturbation? Well, not just masturbation, because you can use it for arousal prior to, you know, a sexual encounter with another individual. Um, you know what? Like one time I was driving and I saw a taxi driver and he was looking at porn on his phone. And I was like, are you going to get yourself hot right in the cab? Or like, how's this going to work? You're like, what's your end game, man? <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> so I don't know is the answer to the question. 
Um, so um, consistent, I guess, Liz, with your idea about, you know, maybe this just goes along with higher sex drive or using it to uh, to get off. Um, if you look at this young adult sample, you look at the women in the sample, a third say they've used porn in the last year, but only 3% in the last week. So to me, that's consistent with, you know, if you're a woman, you might use it occasionally, you might use it with a partner, but you're not going to use it on a regular basis um, as part of your ongoing masturbatory practice. I'm, I'm reading into this because like uh, in these data that I found, there was no, they didn't really ask why, right? Like how exactly in what context are you using it? Which is, a, I think, a really interesting question. I, I, I think we have to like... Uh, uh, asterisks these by the fact that there is few there are huge pressures and differential pressures between men and women to admit porn porn viewing right so and even sexuality I would yeah say. and sexuality oh, yeah. yeah i i suspect the pressures might be the, even the opposite wait so is there a pressure on men to say to use porn more i don't think it's socially desirable to say like yeah, i I, so. I jerk off to porn a lot <laughs> <laughs> no okay not me no you're right and they not with porn viewing uh i think with se sexual activity they're clearly sure is. Yeah, so I think we can say, like, for a number of reasons, which may just be cultural, which may actually have to do with biological differences, it's just much more normative for men to incorporate that into, like, solo sexual activities, whereas for women, that's probably... And I'm speculating here because I didn't find anything on this specifically. It may exist and maybe I just didn't find it. Um, but it seems that for um, for men... It, it's more likely that they're going to be using that as part of masturbation, whereas for women, maybe they're going to use it with a partner, for example. What about men using pornography, pornography for procrastination? <laughs> like, just hypothetically, they have to submit a big grant, but they don't really feel like it. <laughs> you know, some people go to porn. You know, other people might just go to awkward family photos. Whatever you're into. Yeah. So most of the literature has focused on the negative consequences of pornography. Um, so studies have asked questions like, does it make you less satisfied with yourself? Um, maybe you see these porn performers and you're like, well, I can't do that stuff. Now I feel badly about myself. Or maybe you compare your partners to the porn performers and you're like, oh, my partner is not that hot, not that into doing whatever, not that what have you, right? Um, so. The most recent paper that I found uh, taking a comprehensive look at that is a 2017 uh, meta-analysis by Wright and colleagues called Pornography Consumption and Satisfaction, um, a meta-analysis. And this finds for men, but not for women, um, a small but significant negative relationship between pornography consumption and uh, romantic as well as sexual satisfaction um, in one's relationship. So these were R's of around negative 0.1. Now, a couple curious things here. Um, that effect size did not vary between cross-sectional, longitudinal, and experimental studies. I found that very odd because it does seem like if you're dissatisfied in your relationship, you're going to watch more porn, right? So I wouldn't ex expect an inflation of the effect size for the cross-sectional studies. And I find it kind of curious that they don't um, find that. And the second thing is when you see an association that's that small, I naturally worry about publication bias, and their tests for publication bias were, um, I would say, unconvincing. So they they report a fail-safe N, which, um, as we all know, is, 
is total BS, right? Um, they look at the differences in effect size between published and unpublished studies, but I'm not convinced that they did get every unpublished study. So anyway, I'm, I guess the takeaway is I'm not impressed with their tests for publication bias, and I wish they had taken that uh, possibility more seriously. At least in, in the limited studies that we have, it seems like a, a modestly small negative effect. Well, hold the phone, because um, I also found a paper by uh, Taylor Kohut and colleagues, 2017. Oh, and the last author is a friend of the show, Lauren Campbell, um, called Perceived Effects of Pornography on the Couple Relationship, Initial Findings of Open-Ended Participant-Informed, quote-unquote, bottom-up research, uh, published in 2017 in Archives of Sexual Behavior. And they found that when you just ask couples, what effect has pornography had on your relationship? Um, most people say it hasn't at all. So these are pornography users. Um, and uh, second most common is positive perceived effects of pornography, including improved sexual communication, more experimentation, enhanced comfort, whereas negative perceived effects um, like unrealistic expectations or decreased sexual interest were reported considerably less frequently. So there seems to be a mismatch here between what the meta-analysis showed and what people actually say when you ask them what effect has porn actually had on your relationship. Now, people aren't always able to accurately report this sort of thing, right? So they um, they they have rationalization, social desirability, just inaccurate recall, right? So it's a bit of an open question whether you should actually trust people when they tell you. But I do think, especially in light of the small overall effect size in the meta-analysis, like maybe, maybe we should listen to people when they say, oh, it hasn't been a big deal. Here's another thing that that I thought of while I was reading this is like, we really don't think about heterogeneity. So, I, oh, Liz, <laughs> you're excited. <laughs> this is why I love you. And that's not just the booze talking, right? So like you have an R of 0.1, right? So it could be that like for most people, porn is mildly positive. For some people, it's quite negative. Right. And then overall, you have an effect size that's like small and negative. But for most people, it's actually having a positive effect. Right. And I think we think too much in terms of the overall statistic and not enough in terms of the distribution. And admittedly, it's a lot tougher to like summarize, synthesize those sorts of statistics, especially if you're doing this sort of a meta-analytic approach across studies. But I think it's super important, right? Like, especially when the correlation is small, there's all sorts of distributions that would be consistent with that correlation, no? Yeah, I mean, think about it essentially as the a massive multiple mediator model. You know, I mean, essentially almost every simple mediation uh, is false, but especially in psychology, uh, with the exception of perhaps if you're doing like a neuroreceptor on the one hand, but all the same. Um, yes. I mean, there's so many pathways. And what we're looking at in this overall effect is that uh, is the total effect. Um, and therefore, there are things that are pushing it positively, things that are pushing it negatively. Right. Um, and and. There's so many things. I mean, for the on the one hand, um, I'm curious if you came across anything that um, related actual 
porn consumption with sexuality because we certainly know that sex is good for relationships. So, you know, relationship satisfaction is related, uh, you know, pretty reliably to the frequency of sex. That's just the sex lobby, Alice. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, I, in, in, I'm sure that is all that is related. Um, but, you know, I know, at least anecdotally, um, people who view uh, pornography as cheating, you know, who would say, like, if my partner looked at pornography, then they are cheating on me, um, which to me is, I'm like, well, no, they're not cheating on you. You know, actually, you, um, out of your you ass. should be thankful for that. You know, um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, and and so I would assume that for those people, um, you know, and I, I, I mean, this is again, this is actually a friend of a friend, um, but who is pretty religious in, you know, act pretty religiously Catholic, who found that her husband was viewing porn and although being rather religiously Catholic, wanted a divorce. Um, you know, it was so extreme to her. Wait, I mean, this wait, is a simple, this is a single individual, right? But Wait, um, this, your friend wanted No, no, my friend, a, a friend of a friend. Friend of a friend yeah. wanted a divorce purely because of porn? Well, she felt it was cheating. She was so shocked. And then, you know, they, my, my understanding, I didn't like really follow this deeply, but my understanding is that they ended up in, you know, marital therapy and I'm sure they had other issues going on, but you know, um, and it didn't really get resolved um, such that it was this, yeah, it, she really treated it as um, fidelity. Yeah. And, and felt that shock, felt that betrayal. Um, and, and I've heard, you know, also anecdotally that concept echoed, but I only know one case in which somebody really responded to it as if it was infidelity. Whereas personally, you know, um, I'm, I'm cool with my husband looking at other, you know, looking at pornography. I'm cool with him going to a strip club as long as, you know, he's cool with me going to a strip club and doing what I'm going to do. Um, you know, as long as, you which don't... is what exactly, <laughs> well, you know, looking at porn, um, and things like that, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, there's just, there's certain things, but you do have to have a certain level of consent with your partner. It's interesting. I think you do have to talk about it ahead of time and kind of see where they're at. So the know? question here that I have for you, Liz, is do you want your husband using uh, Google incognito mode or would you rather the, the search history be, you know, visible to you? Oh, well, I... I love him because he would only use Google incognito. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of a fool? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Yeah, it's okay. you leave so, a trace, then like that's 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 not why you sparkle so much. Yeah, so I ran across one paper, um, and I was like yelling at. Uh, I, I was working with. <laughs> With a couple of colleagues, and they were like, "What is wrong with you?" And I was reading this paper. I was like, "You can't fucking conclude that." So, so here's I'll I'll give you the brief version of. So the qu research question is: Is it the case that uh, viewing porn makes you more accepting of casual sex, essentially? Um, and this was a meta analysis, and they looked for studies that had um, measures of how frequently do you watch porn. 
What are your stated attitudes towards casual sex? And how much casual sex do you report actually having? And they were like, well, we want to show that the porn actually has like a, a causal influence above and beyond pre-existing proclivities towards having casual sex. Like it could be just like people who are hornier, watch more porn, have more casual sex, whatever. So they're like, look, what we're going to do is we're going to regress the actual amount of casual sex people were having on the self-report measure and on the porn viewing. And if the porn viewing has an, uh, a predictive power above and beyond the self-report measure, so if it's still significant in a multiple reg regression, we're going to say um, that's evidence consistent with um, that porn viewing actually has a causal uh, effect. And that is, in fact, what they found. But to me, that's fucking ridiculous. Maybe your self-report measure just sucked. You have two measures of behavior. You have one self-report measure. Maybe the two measures of behavior are just better at getting at the construct that you care about. Maybe your self-report measure is just garbage. And they just didn't address that. They just like were like, oh, yeah, you know, causal effect and moved on. And I was like, how are, how are reviewers? How do they allow this? Yeah. yeah. It's just unique variants. Um, it, the way to establish causality is through experimental design. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Liz. I'm conscious of time, but I, I feel like um, do we need a like a you know a mashup of the three? Like, so what what happens? I'm going to ask you, Liz, um, to the mind with alcohol, weed, and TNA. <laughs> oh, good times i don't know um yeah i mean what we know we do know that it seems like you know cannabis use can amplify certain aspects of uh alcohol intoxication was something i came across in my um you know in my review uh and I don't know if there's an association between intoxication and sex, but, it, you know, it definitely seems that at least culturally there's this idea of like, hey, let's clink some champagne glasses and, you know, light a few candles. I, I mean, that doesn't happen, you know, a lot, especially in long term married relationships. But, you know, hey, that's some nice foreplay, you know. Um, so I would assume there's some kind of relationship between intoxication and sex, but I don't know. I think with alcohol, but do you think like, do you think weed? I mean, like people, you know, smoke together in my mind. At least, they just... usually like fall asleep. <laughs> no, exactly. That's why, that's why some Game of Thrones and fall asleep together. Yeah, it's, not, exactly. it's not exactly like, you know, let's have, you know, get it on together. Yep. Yeah. Champagne uh... maybe more so. So I had this theory of like, I think I may have had one or two experiences where I was high and I had sex and it was like really amazing. I was like, this is great for sex. And then I was dating somebody and I was like, we actually had never slept together. And I was like, oh, we should, and we knew where we were gonna. And I was like, oh, we should smoke pot first. You know, it'll totally make things better. And it made things super weird. Yeah. It's like, I had a dry mouth. That was not good. Yeah, it was a strategic error. <laughs> <laughs> I would advise that you not and don't make my mistake. <laughs>